set. Okay, everybody, quiet on the set. Scene one, take ten, Marker. From the studios of the Modern School of Film, welcome to Murmur. My name is Robert Malazzo, and over the next hour together, we'll explore where culture meets craft. Today on Murmur, demolished by design, musician, producer, composer, Tyler Bates is with us. Welcome. Welcome to Murmur. Welcome back to Murmur. Robert Malazzo here with you. I am the founder of the Modern School of Film. With you on Murmur Radio, murmurradio.com. Download the show, subscribe, iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, TuneIn Radio. Write us a review on iTunes. That helps, it seems. That's a good thing. Social handles at MSF Murmur, Twitter, Instagram. If you have a topic you'd like me to work with on the show i will match your topic to a guest and have you on the show and you can tell me what you think and your thoughts and if we've covered enough <laughs> i'm sure we will just email me murmurradio at gmail.com send me the topic and i'll match it to a guest i will not let you down also the modern school of film info is modernschoolfilm.com lots of stuff happening murmur radio welcome welcome back Today on the show, Tyler Bates. I am so excited to have Tyler on the show. He is a musical polymath. There's no other way around it. He is a musician's musician, and currently I think he's a composer's composer in his ubiquity. He's done feature films. He's done TV. He's done theme parks. He's done comic books. We'll talk about all that today with Tyler. But ironically, I want to bundle all of that girth into today's topic, which is the invisible composer. Along with the movement of film and even small screen endeavors to larger stimulations, <laughs> bigger experiences, larger than life characters, battles for all of humanity, it seems, hero films, comic films, even on the small screen, even you know Netflix getting into superheroisms and horror filmisms and horror legacy shows and reduxes and all. All this noise, all this visual noise, it's interesting how little or how infrequently we discuss the oral accompaniment 
to the visual noise. And I'll get to those reasons in a second. A little backstory on Tyler. Tyler almost studied finance before he started music, which is really curious. Uh, If we want to look at this in terms of musical sound purity, he actually started as a musician in bands in L.A. His rock musculature brought him to Marilyn Manson. Uh, He toured with Manson as the lead guitarist. He also produced Manson's albums, The Pale Emperor and Heaven Upside Down. So he had all these pure musical sound bona fides, uh, then started composing, tiptoeing, lurching into composing. He's actually composed 70 works of moving art, when we consider film and TV moving art. Uh, The filmmakers he's worked with are also really interesting. If we look at this legacy of the invisible composer, big pictures, big heroes, big lore, but where does the composer fit in? He or she is in there. He or she is the invisible composer. I'll define that more in a second. Tyler worked with Zack Snyder on a handful of films, starting with Dawn of the Dead, which was really Zack's breakthrough. He also composed uh, for Zack 300 and Sucker Punch and Watchmen. Watchmen is also a really good example of the obstacle of sound because Watchmen has a really cool almost jukebox mixtape ethos, as does... Guardians of the Galaxy 1 and 2, which Tyler scored both of these for James Gunn, and he's worked on every James Gunn film. So you see some of the ideas that push us towards the invisible composer, because these films have a sort of mixtape architecture, but there is composed music. I want to talk about that with Tyler today. Uh, Tyler's also worked with some of my favorite filmmakers, modern filmmakers, Rob Zombie. He's worked with Rob on uh, Devil's Rejects. He also composed Halloween, Rob's redo of Halloween, and Rob's redo of Halloween 2. And Tyler's done a lot of work in film redo. And I think that also pushes composers to invisibility status. I think there was a really cool score written for Halloween once upon a time ago. I think there was a, there may have been a refrain for my Michael Myers, written and composed by a guy named John Carpenter. So to step into those musical shoes is something Tyler has done real in really interesting ways. Uh, another, you know, we talk about William Friedkin, no relationship, though, to the Exorcist TV series that Tyler scored. But again, when you think Exorcist, you think that theme, Samurai Jack. I mean, I can just keep pulling them. Samurai Jack, he composed for season five. And Samurai Jack, to me, has this really amazing opening soundscape as well, although that it Iteration was a reboot by Jendi Tartakovsky. Jendi gushes about Tyler. One thing he said about Tyler that was interesting is that the guitar is his weapon of choice, that the sounds and the ideas and literally the jamming and the improvisation and the, the germ of the score comes out of the guitar. That's kind of an interesting revolution. You know, I was thinking about someone like Johnny Greenwood, not knowing how Johnny works exclusively, but the way he uses guitar in score is really interesting to me. Another conversation for another day. So the invisible composer. Another support of this idea of the existence of the invisible composer, it's like the Yeti. I know the invisible composer exists in these movies, but what happens when you go to a Guardians of the Galaxy, where you go to a John Wick Chapter 2, which Tyler scored, or a Deadpool 2, which Tyler scored, you're caught up in the lore and the look and the costumes and the, and the witticisms and the larger-than-life galaxy of these films that I think oftentimes we don't pick up on the sounds as readily. So the invisible composer has to work in that it's not distraction, but it's the potential to be upstaged. I wonder where Tyler kind of feels he fits into those bigger, larger, almost operatic ideas. I think one thing, if we want to look at the current trends of film and even you talk about Netflix, doing more eye-grabbing and ear-grabbing content is does Tyler and do these invisible composers, as I'm labeling them, feel upstaged? Or are they like the referee in a basketball game? When you don't notice them, they're doing their job. 
job. Tyler's work seems to always be based in character and storytelling. But again, I think the mindscape of the viewer now, we are reshaping how viewers watch movies. I'm worried we're losing how how to develop the ear of the film and TV content watcher. You know, talking about TV as well, which Tyler has not only done high genre TV, but he also did music for Californication, a drama comedy. And there's another obstacle in this golden age of TV where the writing is so thick. There's so many bouquets thrown at the writing and people get so wrapped up in the writing of TV series and, and the big name actors of the TV series and the timing of TV, which is different than movies. How does the composer work? Maybe there's an advantage now. Maybe maybe not being noticed in the same way or heard in the same way. Maybe there's an advantage for the composer. I want to talk to Tyler about that. Maybe he or she can paint in smaller proportions with lighter brush strokes, with more minimal ideas. But with minimalism comes external tension. What I mean is when minimalism pushes to silence, <laughs> and silence has to be created in a film, Films aren't made in silence. Silence is the most artificial sound in a movie because there's so much damn talking. <laughs> it's like silence in a podcast. <laughs> no comment. Uh, because silence is at a premium and silence makes producers nervous. Silence can make some filmmakers nervous. I wouldn't guess it makes Tyler's filmmakers nervous because I think they trust him implicitly. Silence makes audience members nervous. Sometimes it's a good nervous with horror. Sometimes it's a bad nervous with drama or other forms of dramaturgy because silence in the context of moving images can mislead us into thinking that something is boring when it's not. It's merely silent. You know, I find silence beautiful. I may be in the minority. I don't think many moviegoers in high commercial film context and high occupancy TV Netflixian uh, content watching want silence. So I think these are obstacles, but I think Tyler probably, is probably more glass half full than I. I haven't talked to him yet. So is he seeing opportunities in this preoccupation occupation? in this distraction potential upstaging. He's also taking on new formats, static images. He's helped birth this really cool series with DC Dark Knight's Metal, which is a limited series put out by DC Comics. And for each issue, Tyler is producing a single that's ostensibly inspired by the episode. So it's really curious to see where this pushes sound and where this pushes the placement of music. Now, it's interesting. These singles are treated as songs with vocals. Alexis Krauss, a friend of Murmur, is one of the vocalists on War Cry, produced by Tyler. So it's interesting. Maybe now music is saying, I can be part of something and my own thing. In film and TV, it's much more difficult, but it's happening. So here's the challenge for you as we light a candle for the invisible composer. Next time you see a big, huge movie, when you see John Wick Chapter 42 or Guardians of the Galaxy Volume 99, listen to the music. I'm not just talking about the really cool mixtape that accompanies the dramaturgy of those movies, potentially, or the witty dialogue that Deadpool is spewing out or John Wick. Listen to the score, not the songs, the score. I was on a plane recently and I was watching Atomic Blonde. I thought it was a really interesting movie. Again, I don't know if that was the hypnotism of watching a movie on a plane that increases its quality and its really cool factor and its and its magnetism, but the sounds and the score is so amazing. Songs from Bowie and uh, 99 Luftballons by Nena, Father Figure, uh, Flock of Seagulls, Till Tuesday, The Clash. I mean, it's a murder's row of music. But the composed score lives and the composed score pushes the film and the composed score characterizes. So Tyler's work is there. Tyler's work is the glue. Tyler's work is the cinematic peanut butter. It glues everything together. The invisible composer. 
Is invisibility an optimal characteristic? Well, I'd rather fly. I'd rather have the power of flight, personally, but invisibility is pretty cool. And musically, you have to have a certain ego, artistic ego, to accept the mantle of invisibility. You really do. But Tyler's also kind of been a part-time rock star, touring the world as a guitarist, the lead guitarist for Manson. So he knows the dope show. But to work with this many cool creatives this often, this frequently, and this in, in this diverse genre pool, Tyler has to have, has to be at peace with it. We'll find out. There's one way to know. We're going to have to talk to him about it. Composition is always part of the hypnosis of a film, but viewers of content are in the deepest hypnotic state they've ever been in because the stories are so big, the brands are so big, the budgets are so big. So you really have to have this admixture of precision, power, adaptability, persona, ego, artistry. You're taking someone else's hypnotic trance and applying your own, for better and worse, like everything else. Today on the show, Tyler Bates, the invisible composer. Now this. Close your eyes. Certainly, Lisa. Now, just listen for a moment. Listen to the sounds of the room around you. Now I want you to pretend you're in a theater. A movie theater. You're the only one there. It's one of those great old movie palaces. And you look around. It's a huge empty theater. You notice that the walls of the theater are painted in black. The seats covered in black. And in the whole pitch black theater, there's only one thing you can see, and that's the white screen. You'll notice there are letters on the screen, tall, thick black letters. They're out of focus, so you begin to drift closer to them in your chair, trying to read them. And you're very comfortable now. It's your favorite chair. You're drifting closer and closer, staring at the letters. Very relaxed now. Your legs are relaxed. Your arms are limp and heavy. You're almost close enough to read the letters now. They start to come into focus. The letters spell sleep. Sleep. What the hell was that? <laughs> what? What? Why? What? Are you okay? You were faking it. You. you that had was to be the faking. weirdest goddamn thing I've seen in my life. He, he was faking, Congratulations, right? Tom. You're one of the lucky eight percent. Still have tears on your cheeks. What the hell did she do to me? Christ, I'm thirsty. Wait, wait, wait what do you mean? What eight percent? Well, I mean, there's only eight percent of the population that's like highly hypnotizable. I mean, almost anybody can go under a little, but not oh, way wow. under. You know, so not yeah. freaky under, like he did. How's your hand? What do you mean? Dude, I stuck a safety pin in your hand and asked you to bleed on one side, but not the other. Which I can't believe you did. You were very cooperative. It was a side of you I hadn't seen before. That happened. You said it didn't hurt. The hell with the pin. I want to know more about uh, Joey Luca. Joey Luca was a kid who used to pound the shit out of you when you were 12. <laughs> you told us all about it. You were crying and moaning. It was hysterical. Shut up. It was very moving, Tom. Joey Luca. Jesus Christ, I haven't thought about it. <laughs> Hey, 
feel kind of strange. Yeah. Yeah, sure. I look at you all, see the love that's sleeping, while my guitar gently weeps. I look at the floor, and I see it needs sweeping. Still my guitar gently weeps I don't know why Nobody told you How to unfold your love I don't know how Someone controlled you and so you I look at the world and I notice it's turning while my guitar gently weeps with every mistake we must surely be learning Still my guitar gently weaves I don't know how you were diverted You were perverted too I don't know how were inverted No one elated you I look from the wings at the play you are staging while my guitar gently weeps As I'm sitting here Doing nothing but aging Still my guitar gently Francois Truffaut was once called the grave digger of cinema. When he wrote for the Cahiers de Cinema, his reviews were so bad that filmmakers thought he was digging their graves. Well, if that's true, then today we have the grave digger of composition, but for a totally different reason, because he was a reluctant grave digger when he was a young man, and I don't think he even knew it at the time. Born in L.A., he's an L.A. kid, uh, but raised in arguably a haunted house uh, near Chicago. Uh, the mobster Jerry Scalisi was uh, not too far away at the time and paid today's guest uh, seven bucks an hour and some beer. That's that's still minimum wage, by the way, uh, to dig some trenches, which were later he would find out <laughs> later he would find out these trenches were graves. But, you know, even though he helped the dead for a little while, he also helped 
helped bring things to life. So that was his penance. 70 scores for films, TVs, video games, amusement parks, recently comic books. I mean, what else can this guy want to do, let alone do? He's also been uh, known to rock and roll a little bit. Wall Street's loss is our gain. Uh, Please welcome to Murmur, Mr. Tyler Bates. Hey, Tyler, welcome to the show. Hey, how are you today? Hey, man, thank you so much for taking the time. I know you're super busy, so I really appreciate that. Sure. Let's get to the important stuff. Was that house haunted? Did you ever do a sort of night vision thing where you went through the house or? (laughs) That's a lifetime ago. Uh, There were two exorcisms performed in the house. And uh, it's something that I would not necessarily expect a person to believe unless they experienced it. However, there were there were dozens of people who uh, firsthandly experienced uh, some very off the wall, uh, you know, happenings there that were more than just creepy sounds and and whatnot. But uh, you know, that's uh, that's definitely a thing in my past, and it's it's somehow been part of what's shaped me to become uh, the person I am and impacted my music in some way. But I'm not a a dark person, even though I work in and with dark material quite frequently. Well, I don't know who, I believe it was either Stephen King or even Billy Friedkin, someone you know really well, or Ingmar Bergman. This sounds like it would fit for all of the above that said to work in the, the dark, you need to live in the light. What do you think about that? Does that make any remote sense to you? To me, it does perfectly because uh, I think it's through your more challenging times in life. It's through uh, the darker experiences you have, if you're willing to allow light into your your spirit, into your your existence, into your relationships, then you have a greater depth to speak from. Uh, I think in the entire myriad of emotions that uh, you're called upon to express in the you know in music through storytelling. So um, I do believe that. I don't believe you can be happy if you don't know what it's like to be unhappy. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, one exists with the other. One defines the other. I want to look at uh, things probably of a little less philosophical nature, presumably, though there's a philosophical idea in here. Uh, I want to kind of get to the guts of the thing. Where are we at in terms of film composition nation? Is this an amazing time to compose, bringing external information into moving arts? Is this a, a renaissance time or is it a bit muddled with technology and shifting platforms and where we see movies? How do you look at the state of things? Uh, again, we'll start with the headline and whittle down a little bit. I think you're talking about uh, a bit of everything. And if you're passive, you may see the current climate is monochromatic. So if you scored films perhaps in the uh, 90s and you use today as the metric for what film scoring is, it may be frustrating or disappointing because it doesn't look the same and the business isn't structured the same and there's no such thing as a locked picture. A lot of the music you see in the theater was literally created in hours and then recorded uh, shortly after. Um, There is the absence of that in the process the majority of the time, especially the bigger the film because it's coming right down to the wire with visual effects and editing and testing you know in the effort uh in an effort to make the best film possible um as a composer you have to be ready to run that triathlon or that marathon with the director and the producers and at the end of the day just know that you're part of a team that's trying to create something that's the best possible in that 
particular climate. Uh, television is a little bit different of an arc. Um, uh, you, there's a much greater capacity to delve deeper into character and to establish recurring motifs. Um, and I think you can you can be a little bit more experimental with television because there's so much content that's streamed or broadcast these days. I think that uh, it's a really an inventive time for sound and what really uh, is considered to be music. Uh, video games right now because the the tremendous exponential advancement in the graphics and the storytelling and of course the uh, population of game titles and in the uh, the marketplace I think that too is also a very interesting uh, dimension of scoring for picture all different cultures as far as who are the the directors or the filmmakers or the developers of the product you know i hate to see the hole and not the donut because i completely understand what you're saying and agree i want to look at two areas of it that to me are sort of lanes that you've been fashioning in deep ways recently and and i'm gonna i'm gonna use hieroglyphics not to be reductive but just to kind of give us a reference hero films i don't want to just say marvel and dc and and you know because john wick is a superhero and you know there there are the 300 is a superhero film so there there are films you've done that are kind of superhero in genre i want to take that as an idea because these stories have now taken over cinema spaces and i'm going to leave that worth or not worth to another day but do you think composing becomes maligned because of these new tenants in this building of cinema? <laughs> do, do, you, do you know what I'm saying? I mean, do we need to tune the fork a little more tightly to the score of a film with superheroes? Are we missing that because we're spending to- so much time thinking about the heroes and the stories and the lore? Are we missing the music? Or do you feel there's enough appreciation for what you're doing? I think that the let's say the uh, uh, the pageantry and the fanfare of music in the context of superhero films is definitely prominent. However, I do feel that there is a great deal of uh, space to explore the depth of the uniqueness of each of these characters and what motivates them to be who they are and to act upon different events that they choose to to become proactive with. So uh, I think there's space to grow. I think we've gotten to a place where uh, it's rare when themes are incredibly distinct and melodic. I think that there's a, a lot of great music happening right now. There's just so many talented people yeah. in the business. It's, it's inspiring <laughs> and humbling at the same time. Yeah, I agree. But I I do know that, you know, more than ever, we are are writing music for hyper stylized movies with, you know, not just walls of sound. We're talking buildings, monuments of sound to compete with. And so the writing style has become more about, you know, top line melody or thematic motif, but also being dense enough and loud enough and punishing enough to match the the density and power of sound design. I consider sound design part of what I do in the context of music. However, that's just the, the, the way films are being made right now. That's mm. Everybody is expected to bring the full dynamic spectrum of sound 
to what they're contributing to a movie, whether it's sound supervisors or composers, would love to see music be considered more prominently. Well, it's, it's interesting. It's something I say to my students all the time, that music is sound and sound is music. And, you know, looking at a lot of the genres you work in, horror or, you know, your work with Rob, Zombie has been incredible in that way. You know, that where does the sound begin and the music end? And it's a beautiful uh, interlacing. Uh, I, I want to extend the question into television because I, I'm afraid in the golden era or age we're back in or as if we've ever left TV do you think because of the 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 potency of TV writing let's look at a different article that may upstage music do you think we're missing the note in terms of how good modern TV composition is what about the rece- receiving of information do you think audiences need to to listen a little differently because TV is in such a great place right now? Ultimately, I think people respond to storytelling however however much it resonates with them, whether it's film, television, or games. And they're all different experiences because a film is a communal experience. Right. You know, when you yeah. go to see a horror film or a superhero film or a a comedy, you know, you're, you're usually in a theater with, uh, you know, quite a few people and their emotional and psychological response to the storytelling impacts your experience. And you cannot have that same experience by yourself at home or with another person at home. It's a different type of, of experience. And I think they're both valid. Um, the thing that I truly love about television is, is I think that, you know, the opportunity to binge watch or to watch a concentrated amount of a TV show and delve deeply into a character and perhaps a compressed amount of time. If you have the patience, you know, you're not disturbed by an audience of people who are getting up and coming back to their seat or whatnot. It's a different type of thing. And I think that people into the, they really get to know the characters well enough for us to expand as composers, expand the, the strata of how we perceive their mind to be or, or the, the actual world that the uh, the story takes place in. I mean, you could not do, in my opinion, Breaking Bad in a two two and a half hour film. It just it wouldn't work, even with a sequel or two. Are, are you um, talking dramaturgically or orally? You know, they're one and the same, mm. really, because mm-hmm. at, at the end of the day, intellectualizing these types of experiences, I think, is doing a disservice to what filmmaking is about i mean filmmaking is truly about storytelling and emotion yeah however the audience experiences it receives it the objective is is to transport someone uh to a place to anywhere uh beyond their conscious mind and engage them in a story that hopefully they can relate to by their own life experience in some some even if loosely tangential way so I, I really am not the judge and jury on what is good, what's not, what's best. I embrace everything and I look for uh, the opportunity to improve as an artist and to learn more about people, learn more about ways of, you know, different uh, styles of storytelling. I do mostly consider the people I will be working with as the number one draw to whatever it is I'm working on. It's not. I don't love violence personally, but maybe my response to violence in the form of music is what works well uh, for the directors that I am uh, 
collaborating with on a repeated basis. I, I think that's lovely, and I love your agnosticism, you know, slash wide open mindedness. I, I and and my questions are less uh, in the subjective, which is better, which is more optimal. I'm just curious your your strategic underpinnings. You reminded me something. You know, it's it's also funny thinking about score and composition because we're also listening to so many so much more content on headphones you know what's the opportunity there for you as a composer can you paint in miniature can you use smaller brush strokes with sound let's as you say let's look at the opportunity here do you think when you're composing say something like the punisher or something for a smaller screen do you think i can i can brush stroke a little more subtly here because they're going to be listening with headphones or are you all dramaturgy all in on the story or do you think of the output of the audio as well. I do consider all aspects of what you've just asked me, and I am trying to do my best to reduce the density of some of the music I'm creating. Interesting. Uh, where it doesn't require it, uh, even if it's asked of me. So I, I, that's the challenge. Is sometimes how do I how do I create and deliver a minimalist idea that you know, to satisfy the director it needs to be a little bit more dense than I would like it to be. I'm trying to find a great balance there so that when we do have to really hit hard, that there is a, a some headroom for a dynamic I, I impact at that. I love that. You know, we talk about editors using negative space and cinematographers using negative space. There's negative sound. <laughs> you know, there's the absence sure. of sound. And, and silence is a sound, as you know. You craft silence because films aren't made in silence. But silence makes people nervous. And I'm not talking about the uh, Devil's Rejects nervous or the Halloween nervous. I'm talking, about, <laughs> I'm talking about producers and sometimes filmmakers. Do you find the fight for space, oral space, is ongoing and interesting and is it an interesting challenge it's definitely a challenge uh but regardless of the frustration that i know many composers have uh <laughs> in in crafting music that definitely goes through a series of litmus tests in order to be approved by everybody who is creatively uh involved in a project it can be a little soul crushing to have you know, tons of detail and um, some of your favorite stuff demolished by a diesel engine. But there <laughs> needs to be a point where we we have to understand it, it as composers. It's our responsibility to do whatever it is that is going to make us healthy and to make us feel uh, artistically satisfied. Yeah. And I don't yeah. think that there's any one genre uh, that can can completely satisfy that. And so I think it would be unfair for me to do only films. And at some point, inevitably, some filmmaker is going to get the most frustrated, burnt out version of me because I haven't done enough to refresh my energy as a creative person, as a as a composer. And instead, you become jaded when you continue to you know engage in the same exercise and fall short of what is a satisfactory result for yourself. I mean, in film, yeah. I just, I want the audience to love it. Hmm. Once that's where I'm at. I'm an audience member. I want it to be a great experience for them. That's very much how video game developers look at their work and really just care about the experience of the gamer. And, you know, that carries over into my work on records. You know, I think 
especially like with the second Marilyn Manson record I did with him, you know, I made that record with him after having done about 70, you know, performed about 70 live shows. And I went on to do many after that, but having had the experience of being on stage in that situation, I, I then wrote the second record with him to be performed live. Hmm. And that was a great opportunity for me to address my own, I wouldn't say frustrations, but my own, you know, understanding of why the first record we did together, while I think it's a great record, there are some songs that probably would not be best in a live setting because it's a more, more of a cinematic record. And it's the same thing with film. You know, if I find that I'm, I'm being demolished the same way in multiple films by sound design, then I either need, I need to be proactive. I need to have very non-confrontational discussions with the sound designer and the director. And let's really find out how the director wants to play this sequence. Let's really understand what the point of the sequence is. And perhaps I can write music that's more appropriate to satisfy that objective. And once again, that's a, that's a learning opportunity. And I don't think that I'll get through this career having learned uh, anywhere close to everything. So, <laughs> so I'm looking, I am looking for that opportunity. I'm also very inspired by sound designers because I am a sound geek and I love to mutate sound sources into be into sounds that I compose with frequently. So well, I, I was saying, I was thinking, I've never heard such a great Skype signal in my life, and I'm thinking this man understands audio. I, your Skype is, sounds like you're right next to me, and Skype rarely sounds as good as it sounds right now. I want to thank you for that. We're speaking with Tyler All Bates right. as we get to our mid beat here. Uh, I want to jog through some process things just because I know our audience is, is going to be crazy fascinated by it as I am. Um, Talk about script reading. Uh, how important is reading and, and, and listening to the script? Or do you read it, hold it in abeyance until you talk to the director about the concept? W where does the script come into your mind in terms of the plumbing of what you're going to do? Or do you know that's simply a blueprint? Let's wait till I talk to the filmmaker. Definitely knowing what actors are cast in the roles has an impact on how I start thinking about what the music will be because I certainly consider their physique and the way they move and, and, and the, you know, the timbre of their voices, uh, is something I factor into the musical concept. You know, I don't want to be writing with instrumentation that's going to lie and write within the frequency of their voices. So that's something, but the way a script reads cold without having prior experience with the director, um, can be interpreted a number of ways. And of course, if I'm given a script to read, I'm going to read it and I'm going to try and extrapolate as much useful information as I can. And that's an understanding of the story. But what I want to find out uh, subsequent to that is when I discuss it with the director, I want to know exactly what's, you know, how they see this character. Give me some backstory on the character that's not written into the script so mm -hmm. I can understand their sensibilities a little bit more especially when it's Friday night and it's 11 o'clock and I'm writing a cue and I don't want to try and call a director uh, with a question and I want to take a risk with with a compositional piece, you know, uh, an idea. I want to have some modicum of confidence that I can, you know, explore a little bit. And um, I think if I have a gr really good understanding of the character and how the director sees the character, that I can do that with some degree of success. So... Uh, paramount to being successful in these endeavors is to truly understand 
the filmmaker. We're going to swoop in as we get closer to the end. You know, I was thinking of source material. You've had uh, graphic source material recently to give birth to some amazing music uh, via DC's Dark Knight's Metal, and I want to get to that as we as we drive to the end. So it's interesting what you say about source material. What about visiting a set or a stage? Uh, do you try to stay away? And obviously, the stuff you know sometimes you can't get to the stage, but if given the opportunity to go to a stage or see a rehearsal or see a, a day of shooting, would you seize that or do you want to beta block that out of your process? No, I, I want every insight uh, available to understand the the process that they're that the director and the crew are going through in the the crafting of a film. Uh, oftentimes, I'll visit the set, and a director will ask me then to compose a piece of music, and they'll be you know they'll take me to a set that they're building, and you know they'll reference a scene in the film and we'll do a walkthrough of what the scene is intended to look like anyway at that time. And when I get back to my studio, I'll start working on ideas for them to, to consider. And oftentimes they film to the music. So that's something James Gunn and I have, uh, in, we've definitely imbibed in, in the last three films we've worked on together. Um, the, you know, the guardians movies more so, uh, there was much more music that the actors listened to in earbuds as they were actually filming the, the movie. I think it's a process composers would love to have. You know, as you know, sound usually goes with, is connected to the budget, you mm-hmm. know, and the girth of a film. So it is, it's, a, it's an ideal process. And, and it's, it's wonderful, as you say, to have that insight. But I know some composers want to stay away from the, the set, even if they have access to it, that there's a, sanct, there's a different sanctity to the sanctity. The collaboration with you and James, which you've talked about, and how much pre-recording is done, done is really exciting. And to have the actors live in that sound is really exciting as well. Uh, do you ever get feedback from actors? Not notes, but have you ever had an actor yeah. say, I love this, this is really, this is a great motif for me, or this will help me connect? Any any examples you want to throw out? For sure. Uh, when I first visited the Guardians of the Galaxy set for the first film, the first person I ran into was Chris Pratt. James Gunn introduced us, and Chris was like, dude, man, <laughs> you know, shooting to your music, and it's the first time I've ever done this. It totally dialed me into my character and what this movie really is, and it's very, very exciting. Then for fun, James Gunn made me a Ravager pilot, so in all the makeup and costume and stuff I was filming oh, with them. Coo- how cool. Yeah, how cool. it's funny. So he did it to he did it just to have fun with me. But uh, it was the sequence where the song Cherry Bomb was playing, and for the first time in my life, I really felt the power of the music in the context of the actual filming or creation of a sequence. I then understood the power of how James employed the music as part of the production process. The stone reacts to anything organic. The bigger the target, the bigger the power surge. All Ronan's got to do is touch the stone to the planet's surface and zap all plants, animals, Novacore. Everything will die. So Ronan does not make the surface. Rocket will lead a team to blow a hole in the Dark Aster's starboard hole. Then, our craft and Yondu's will enter. Won't there be hundreds of Sakaran soldiers inside? I think of Sakaran as paper people. Having a common understanding of what the language of that music is before we hit post-production, where everything is moving at light speed, it's really fantastic. It yeah. informs everything 
every creative discussion uh, is then backed with a, a tremendous modicum of confidence and that we know what it is is now we're talking dynamics and we're talking emotions and you know structure we, we get to the fun stuff we get kind of get to the stuff that second level that a lot of times you can't get to because as you say infrastructurally and temporally you just or economically you can't get to so it's cool that you you all all of you James and the cast and you have earned your your place at that table we're speaking with Tyler Bates a couple more thoughts uh, with this very busy uh, ubiquitous composer you know I was thinking you're talking about the song remaining the same. Uh, uh, pardon the expression. I was thinking about some of the projects you've done, and I was putting them under the heading of going over sacred ground, you know, in a way for yourself and for other composers. I was thinking of the work you did with Rob, Rob Zombie and the Halloween films. And, you know, you and everyone else who thinks of Halloween, the first run, you think of Carpenter, and you think of that music. What was that like? And other projects, you know, like The Exorcist for TV, it's different. I understand each one is different, but, you know, even Conan, the Barbarian, and the, the, doing the feature again, or or even doing Deadpool 2, where you didn't do the score to Deadpool 1. What's it like when you go over that kind of ground? And let's start with Carpenter, like the sacred turf of John Carpenter music. First off, I'm a huge fan, and uh, the first Halloween movie definitely screwed me up when I was a kid. <laughs> um, I mean, to have ever imagined at any point before Rob called me the day he called me to ask if he thought that... Uh, making a Halloween film would be a good idea. I never imagined it. Uh, and that's even after having done Dawn of the Dead. But, uh, of course, sorry. Yeah, I forgot Mr. Romero had a pretty good film that you oh, guys yeah. worked on. Yeah, sorry. Sorry about that. Uh, Get Carter. I've done it as a strange. Oh, that's right. Get number, Carter. Yeah. yeah. A number of remakes. Once Rob and I got into Halloween, there were parts of it that we were really thrilled about, uh, more in the, the violence. Uh, those sections of the film were a lot more freer than the thematic aspects of the movie. And I really don't think a Halloween movie with the shape works better or as well as John Carpenter created it to be uh, if you deviate from the physical archetype too much and the musical style. I think there's something about those synthesizers that he used originally and the very uh, industrial quality to his compositions that when you deviate from it, it starts not to feel like it, it delivers as much of a, a unique impact. And so it's amazing with the great, sorry to interrupt, but with the great craftspeople, it's amazing whether it's Shakespeare or John Carpenter, if you jump off that meter, you know, you don't realize that meter is there. Sorry to interrupt, but I think it's a fascinating statement. Go on, please. Oh, for sure. It's, it was a tremendous learning experience for both Rob and myself really made me just a bigger fan of John Carpenter knowing that he created something, just a, a style of of composition and a theme that just cannot be improved upon. You know, <laughs> I did a version of the theme that is a much more industrial, dirty, filthier uh, version of that, and and I really composed that for Rob for his presentation to the Weinstein Company, but. Um, it, you know, when we really got into it in the context of the film, I really had to pull the music back more into the sound of John Carpenter's original work.
so it was cool. it was a very very interesting exercise and i love working with rob our our work on devil's rejects together is one of my favorite scores that i've done to date i just got a gush about rob i've never met him i actually think he's one of the great living filmmakers and that's not come i'm not a fanboy who's just all about buckets of blood and genre it's quite the opposite i think we underestimate how great a filmmaker on a technical compositional uh collaborative level i think those films are as high a film art effort as we've had and i'm not just saying that because you're here i've said that a lot to people in close company you're always turning over the leaf and the worm man as all great living artists do as we close out with one beat here we're talking about a project you did recently where you're literally I'm going to I'm going to use my words and you can you can correct them but you're scoring a to me it's like you're scoring a comic book I've never seen anything quite like it or heard anything quite like it talk about working on static let's use quotes static images you and uh, Michael Lozando producing a series of songs based on DC's Dark Knight's metal talk about that uh, and in terms of the light bulb because we're talking about static images where was your in there did you read a lot of comic books was it still the traditional in you use on any media well first off Mike and I have known each other for a long long time um, he used to play on my beginning scores at the time he began working with Dr. Dre. Um, so it's a long time ago. So when this opportunity came about, we were thrilled about it. And when we had a meeting with Scott Snyder and Greg Capullo, Greg is, uh, you know, lead artist on it. Scott is a lead writer. They're great guys. And they gave us a, a really interesting synopsis on this series. And they're very excited about the possibility of music and and uh, the attitude this music could embody. We were not necessarily looking at each issue of this comic literally and then interpolating or extrapolating from that a song. The songs were uh, cultivated from an overall feeling of the arcs of this series. And we thought about musical characters that we would love to have involved, people that we think are interesting and disparate enough to keep each song to the next different enough and interesting enough yet have a commonality to them there's a common denominator obviously being mike and i and certainly uh, gil sharon playing drums on several of the the tracks is uh is helpful so there is a there's a connection to everybody involved in this project through friendship the the artwork definitely gave mike and i a tremendous uh, you know, wealth of inspiration to begin working on the music. And we really started just in a long jam session with Gil. You know, I was just cranking out guitar riffs and Mike uh, certainly has no shortage of ideas. So it was just really fun. It just came from an overall feeling about the series as opposed to right. underscoring sequences or scenes. In the tradition of music inspired by X, Y, and Z. So we've done that with films. You know, whether it's print, yeah. the bad example is Prince, right? Music inspired by Batman. Or maybe that's not the bad version, but that's <laughs> that's the idea. Uh, just forgive me this last sin, two quickies. They can be yes or no. We've been speaking with Tyler Bates. I mean, I could speak hours and hours and he's been gracious to give us his time just two real quickies would you ever do a live score you know we we have these now you know live scoring uh, lord of the rings and live scoring star wars and live would you ever do a live score to something you you've done sure i'm working on some things right now that would be satisfying for me as an artist i 
am not particularly interested in just going up and doing the Guardians of the Galaxy review right. or right. John Wick live per se. But <laughs> there, there are uh, I have uh, performed material from those movies on a couple of occasions and it was a lot of fun for me again doing doing something like that is not about me. You know, I mean, if I'm to do a show like that, I would not be a person that would even speak to the audience. I would have somebody there right. um, because it's really a celebration of things that we all love. And I want to help bring it to a new dimension for fans of that. I'm not seeking rock stardom. I know what that feels like uh, having gone out and played around the world with Manson and um, that's fun. But, you know, as an artist, I wanted to stay focused on the things that challenge me and interest me. And um, usually the way I I experience the strongest emotion is through camaraderie. So um, that's what I'm looking to do. And in a performance setting, I would also want that to be the case. You segued perfectly into the last 30 seconds of this. Um, you know, we're in this renaissance and really new territory with musicians doing scores. You know, obviously, you know, when I say musician, I mean kind of in the popular canon. This isn't a new idea. I mean, Danny Elfman was in Oingo Boingo, but we're beyond that. You know, we're into Johnny Greenwood from Radiohead. We're in, into Jonesy from Sigur Rose. Have you ever gotten any blowback in the sense of the traditional training or the traditional resume or the traditional pelts on the wall or a composer is just too nice. <laughs> have, have you, yeah. have you ever felt any whiplash because of where you've come from? I mean, your work speaks for itself, but just to, to be cynical and Italian for a second as we end, have you ever, <laughs> have you ever gotten any criticism on that level? You know, to be honest with you, I wouldn't know if it's something that's said on social media. I don't follow uh, or engage personally in social media. You're a smart uh, man. You're a very smart man. Um, I know that there are people out there who who love to have discussions, arguments and level their opinions with what they think is the understanding of what we're doing here. But, you know, people are not truly informed when they're when they're speaking to this. Um, I'm just trying to do a great job and, and I'm trying to continue to lead an interesting life as an artist. And in that I'm going to put myself in the most challenging situations possible with the most inspiring people, uh, possible. So sometimes I'm going to have a greater degree of success with, you know, exploring or attempting to execute ideas than others. And like I said, this is truly a learning experience for me. And, uh, I, you know, would assume that at this point I've accrued enough uh, experience and knowledge and developed my talent enough to do my job respectfully or respectably. And, um, you know, it's not really my business what the layperson thinks. I do think uh, I, I there's no doubt I've received a tremendous amount of support for, you know, my accomplishments over the past several years with making records and touring and maintaining my film work and television work and a family and friendships and whatnot. I work very hard to to do all of it, and I've been appreciative of the opportunity to expand my my musical experience into something that uh, that 
makes every day really exciting for me. You, you talk about the people in your life who continue artistically to inspire you. Your humility is disarming. I've thrown every dark question at you that I could, every dark societal, cultural, aesthetic question. You, you've deflected them all. Good is uh, triumphed over evil. You are inspiring, man. And I'm telling you, I could spend a day talking to you, but I won't keep you another second. The next time we do this, we got to do it in person. And I'll, sh- I'll shut up and whatever you want to talk about, I'll translate your music uh, from the side of the stage, whatever you need, man. Uh, if I can be of help, you are great, and I will be listening uh, as I go on. Thank you so much, Tyler. I really appreciate it. Thank you, Robert. Yeah, it's been a pleasure talking to you, and uh, we'll speak sometime down the line. Take care, my friend. All best to you, and we'll catch up with you again. Bye, Tyler. All right, be well. I want to thank Tyler Bates for being here with us today on Murmur. I want to thank you for being here with us today on Murmur, but you can be with us all the time on Murmur. How cool would that be? <laughs> Download, subscribe, iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, TuneIn Radio. Love TuneIn Radio. Join us, social handles at MSF Murmur, Twitter, Instagram. Email me, murmurradio at gmail.com. The website is murmurradio.com. The other website is modernschoolfilm.com. Lots of dot coms, lots of noise, not enough silence, ironically. See ya.